Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by plant, fire, and arid zone ecologist, Dr. Boyd Wright. Boyd, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, James. Wonderful to be here. No worries. Now, I want to start by asking you about Spinifex grass. I feel like the name Spinifex grass, everyone knows it. But in a place like Australia where we all huddle by the coast and in major cities, I feel like lots of Australians might not actually have had the opportunity to see it in full force. What What is it and why is it so important? Ooh, wow, um, tr- big question. Um, yeah, so it's a grass. Um, it's a genus of, of um, grasses and uh, the scientific Latin name's Triodia. Uh, there's about, oh, I can never keep track of how many actual species of Triodia there are because people are constantly revising. Um, I think at the moment there's somewhere around 70 or 80 uh, described species. Um, they're important because they, they're the most, well, they're the most widespread um, community dominant in Australia. Triodia grasslands cover Somewhere, I'm, you know, I've studied them for about 20 years and I'm still not quite certain what the actual <laughs> um, area they cover in Australia. Estimates range from sort of 22% up to 30% of the continent, you know, somewhere between a, a bit over a fifth to nearly a third of Australia is covered by um, triodia grasses. So for one, they're really widespread and, you know, cover a lot of the country. Um they're not particularly. I mean, they ha- they do have a place in the pastoral industry, um, but you know, typically they occur on fairly low fertility soils. Not always, but in general, um, sort of low fertility, often sandy soils in fairly arid areas. So um, yeah, they're generally not that productive for. Um, for raising animals which is probably why they've kind of never really been um, the subject of that much um, research attention Um, but they're you know i mean they're a really interesting plant community there's a lot uh, a lot of animals um, especially a lot of rare and threatened animals um, you know live in the triodia grasslands everything from bilbies to to um, you know, all sorts of uh, rare, rare, endangered mammals and reptiles, and and so on. Um, and floristically, they're they're pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, I've been stu- like I said, I've been studying the the ecology of them for nearly twenty years now. Um, and yeah, I don't really feel I've touched, scratched the surface really of of of, um, of the ecology and the the way the the systems function. So um, yeah, and I think that's probably partly a function of them being so poorly researched it's just a really good um sort of yeah untouched well not untouched but you know poorly researched ecosystem for an ecologist to to get stuck into and try and try and work things out in it's a bit of a shame when a plant isn't useful for agriculture we kind of forget about it and (laughs) don't study it is when you're saying it's not like good for for pasture is it simply not nutritious or it doesn't grow in areas where you want to be running stuck Mm. yeah well um probably a bit of both i mean the plant generally the triodias are not grazed but there are certain species that that cattle um, and sheep will kind of will eat 
Um, uh, Triodia pungens is one of them. Um, and also the age of the plant themselves can can determine the palatability of them. Um, I mean, they're never, even in the best situation, they're no, never going to be more palatable or nutritious than some good quality um you know, shorter-lived or non-spinifex native pastures. Um, but, you know, the, the, there are species that, that are nibbled on. Um, the problem with a lot of them is that uh, they're, pr they're actually pretty well defended against um, herbivory. There's triodia grasses are sort of broken into two groups. There's... Um, so I've got... And I've got two of the groups up there on my shelf up there. <laughs> the one on the left is what what's called a soft spinifex. That's actually a, a triodia pungens seedling uh, up there. And they are kind of fairly, the, the vegetation's fairly softish, um, but they're generally pretty well defended against herbivores by, have, by being covered in resin. And if I, if I was to grab that down for you and give you a close look, you'd see it's sort of covered in a grey kind of dust or resinous sort of, material that uh that actually um yeah grazing animal if you if you cover that in molasses or something um which some <laughs> pastoralists do in a, in their best efforts to get them get stock to eat the stuff it, it can be eaten but mm -hmm. um i've been told i've heard sort of anecdotal anecdotally that um if stock eat a lot of those uh ones that have the resin on them they die, and oh. when the carcasses are examined, they they often have big kind of um, just sort of resinous masses in their stomach. So um, mm. I don't think it's overly digestible the spinifex resin, um, and not not good in large quantities for animals. Um, so yeah, in so you've got those softer ones that are often defended well with that sort of resin stuff against herbivores. And then you've got ones that are that are called hard spinifex, and that's the seedling on the right, which is a triodia-based dowie eye. Um, and there's a there's a lot of ones that we call the hard spinifexes, and like the common name, they're just bloody hard. The uh, some species have kind of leaves that are you know, but roughly about the size of a knitting needle, extremely sharp, um, so sharp that that species up there, the triodia-based dowie eye, you pretty much cannot obtain a leaf specimen from it unless you've got a shovel you've got it you, if you've got a shovel you can dig out from under it and chop a bit off but you try and get a gra grasp a bit of that with your bare hands and it's so well defended with hard prickles um, on the end of the the leaf stalks they're, they've just got kind of they sharpen to a point um so yeah they're, they're very well defended against herbivores them uh, those ones so yeah they're just not in general that palatable they grow in very low rainfall areas they the spinifex grasslands dominate the driest parts of australia including the simpson desert where rainfall can you know often be next to nothing in a given year and i think it's got a, an average annual rainfall of around 100 mil and yet the spinifex that particular species the triadia based dowie dominates that desert um, so they do very well um, or can you know cope very well with uh, very low rainfall conditions um, yeah so just in general they 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 often occupy environments not suited for grazing yeah the hard spinifex are what i think of when i think of spinifex i think of things that'll rip your skin off as you're walking past them so it's good to hear there's nice softer ones right there <laughs> But yeah, yeah. are they even targeted by our native herbivores? Are a ruse going for them, or even Ooh. then, is that too much for them? I don't 
I don't really know how much they're grazed by native herbivores. I don't think it's very much. Again, I think it's sort of like the, you know, the grazing animals, the sheep and cattle that are are put into spinifex grasslands. They'll probably nibble on it, but if there's anything else around, they'll go for that first. Mm. Um, People do say that, again, sort of anecdotally, you can read about people putting horses into a spinifex grassland pasture when it's um, flowering and uh, and that the horses will do pretty well on the flower, on eating the, the little flower um, seed heads. Uh, so I don't, I, you know, you, could, you read about that um, and I'm sure it's true, but I reckon um, you have to be a bit, you would have to, interpret that a little bit cautiously because a lot of the time the spinifex grasses although they'll flower pretty readily after um, even fairly small rainfalls they often don't set seed or um, very low uh, seed setting rates so um, a lot of the flower shows are just kind of barren they don't have seeds in them so whether the people that talk about putting horses into um, grasslands and and sort of getting them to to eat the the so-called spinifex oats whether they're doing well out of just the empty seed heads or whether they only do well when they're put into a grassland that's actually seeding, which happens very rarely, um, I don't know. So So I think of plant life cycles as being an annual thing where once a year we have our our spring, our flowering season, and then after that they set seed or grow fruits or whatever. Mm. But you're saying that these grasses go to all the trouble of flowering and developing seed pods apparently but don't have seeds in them Mm. why yeah james that again is a really uh a tricky question and people have been asking that one for quite a long time um um sorry jacobs did was one of the well i guess um no that's not he he was a very early spinifex researcher and before him there was um nancy burbage who was who's probably the first real researcher to take an interest in the triodia grasses but people have long recognised that they do this thing where they flower regularly, pretty much on an annual basis um, after rain, but very rarely, rarely set seed. Um, I think Surrey was almost unable, during his PhD in the 70s, he was almost unable to even get enough seeds to do a few germination trials. Um, <laughs> yeah, He saw it flowering all the time, but was never, never able to find any seeds. I think he did in the end, though. But um, why do they do that? Well, it's a really tricky one and uh, people have kind of hypothesised that oh, it could be a, um, a, a nutrition factor, perhaps a, a not enough. They sort of, it rains, they go to produce flowers and then there's just not enough fertility in the soil to go on and produce seeds. And they've, they've, they've t- some good, really good scientists have tested that idea and, and that was... Um, debunked that hypothesis so it's it's not related to to plant nutrition Um, it's a tricky one and my suspicion and something I'd really like to to go out and test experimentally is that it it could relate to um, seed predation by 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 animals Um, the spinifex seeds themselves are eaten by just about everything out there from tiny little virtually microscopic um, uh, wasp or gore or fly larva that get um, uh, oviposited into the flowers when they're just being produced and the, the larva of those will kind of suck out the uh, goodness from the seeds and 
and consume them at before they're even properly matured and and you can and that's really really common you can get entire um, seed crops that get infested with with these little um, you know predispersal seed predators and they'll wipe out a crop if the if the plant does actually get a chance to to produce a few seeds um, once they hit the ground just about everything out there eats them from ants to um, to rodents love them to um, small mammals even humans um, used to collect them and eat them for seed so it, the, there's a major um, problem for the spinifex grasses of, of trying to get seed into the soil seed bank that just because predation levels are so high so I've been running with a hypothesis for quite a few years um, that the trick with this these barren flower shows where there's a very small fraction of seed being produced during these big flowerings is that it's it could be some way of kind of um, reducing the levels of predation on the seeds if they produce a big bunch of sort of empty florets with a few that have got seeds in them and drop them to the to the ground it's going to make it that much harder for the predators to kind of find the good mm. ones and they'll you know um, be looking for all the seeds going through them you know finding all the, these empty florets and um, give up and go on to something else where it, and the few that are viable might get a chance to um, go into the soil whereas if they were produ- if, if they were filling all of the um, florets with viable seed and dumping them the predators would come in and just be having a field day getting fat eating all the the seeds so that's a hypothesis i've got and it's testable and i'd like to go and test that sometime in the next few years but uh, seems also like one of those impossible to test hypotheses (laughs) if they're stupidly rarely seeding they don't do like mass seeding events once every 400 years or something (laughs) is that yeah they do they do (laughs) they no, absolutely they do that's the that's another interesting part of their um life cycle i'm working on a paper at the moment where i've sort of documented i've been monitoring a population of um pungens grasses near the alice springs airport on depot station for monitoring those grasses for about um nine years i think eight eight years and um i've been lucky enough to see two event flowering events where they did produce um a heap of seed yeah that's called um mass seeding basically where a plant uh, population f- doesn't produce seeds for quite a few years and then all of a sudden has a very big seeding event mm-hmm. um, so yeah every I don't know it looks like every maybe five somewhere between five and ten years um, the spin spinifex grasses will have a flower show where it's just everything's happening they're going gangbusters they're producing heaps of flower spikes all of the flowers are they've got very high rates of seed filling and all of a sudden you can go from having almost no seed produced in a um, triodia grassland to a system where you've got, um, gosh, I've done the calculations and I'm working on a paper where I've described how much seed it's produced during a mass year, but it's it's in the order of tonnes per, per square kilometre of seed. The, the system just gets absolutely flooded and... Mm. Um, yeah, again, I, you know, like mast seeding in other parts of the world, it's, it's been observed in loads and loads of different plant species. The bamboos are the really, um, probably the best known mast be- seeding species, and some of them don't produce a, a mast crop for up to 100 years or more. They um, might do nothing reproductively, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the entire population of plants will seed heavily, 
um, and then die in the case of the bamboos. And the most popular hypothesis for mass seeding is the predator satiation hypothesis where um, the plants don't produce seed for a long time, predator populations become very reduced, the predators get starved out effectively and then by producing this intermittent large-scale seed seeding event, there's heaps of seed around, there's not many predators, um, the predators that are there get overwhelmed with a glut of seed and a few seeds escape and get a chance to establish and become seedlings. Mm. So um, that's, that's the most popular hypothesis for, for mast seeding and I reckon it's got a, there's a pretty good argument um, that that hypothesis applies to triodia grasses, that these intermittent but very large-scale seeding events give... Um, provide the opportunity for a few seeds to escape predation and um, become established. I feel like grasses of all plants are probably overlooked sometimes. I mean, most people, when they think of grasses, think lawns or think pasture. (laughs) But they've probably got pretty amazing ecological stories and are incredibly important given their ubiquity. Mm. Do you ever have to get defensive about grasses, even amongst botanists? You don't. And I go on these rants in the animal world where you know people like the big, fluffy megafauna, and I have to defend the little creepy crawlies. I imagine there's a similar situation within botanists. Look, to be honest, no, no. All right, I think I'm just being mo- very yeah, judgmental yeah, yeah. of botanists. No. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, I think most people, sort of in the botany world and ecology world, recognise that that the spinifex grasslands and sort of arid zone grasses and grasslands generally are pretty damn interesting. Um, but not just the fact that not many people know much about them, um, yeah, means that sort of, yeah, people just, just don't have that much to say about them um, in general. But I, th- I think there's a, you know, I think most people would are interested to, to mm. learn a bit more about them. People are often just, you know, arid habitats are sort of, most people don't have that much to do with them, of a lot of people have never been to one, and so yeah, it's we everyone knows that most of Australia is kind of dry and uh, and and a lot of it's very arid and inhospitable. So even if people haven't been there, there's often just this bit of a, an underlying interest in you know knowing more about what's out there. Mm. So yeah, no, I, I've never honestly had too much trouble um, telling or convincing people that this. You know, something good about the the triadic grasslands. Really, in my sure. head, I'm picturing like the orchid people are just only interested in orchids and don't care about your little grasses or something. <laughs> but it's good to hear that it's all in my head. Well, I'm like <laughs> I'm the other I'm I'm like that, but with triadic grasslands <laughs> and arid. I couldn't care less about a, a tropical orchid or something, to be honest. Yeah, but I mean they're nice and everything. But yeah, no, for me, it's just always been about the really the the arid systems. Mm. Yeah. I don't know why. It's probably probably why I've battled for funding and whatnot and mm. over the years so much. But yeah, I've just got this sort of, got the blinkers on kind of and, and just always focused on those desert places. They're fascinating places. I mean, I've spent very, very little time out in real desert arid areas. I, I was actually really annoyed a couple of years ago going out to Alice and Uluru in those areas for the first time. I was really excited about seeing that stark barren desert <laughs> and just before going there, it was a massive, big, just couple of weeks of, of rain. And so I you know, got there and got out of the car and looked around and it was lush and green and flowers everywhere. I was really annoyed that <laughs> I didn't get to see proper 
harsh desert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Australia's got... Uh, I was kind of the same when I first out, went to Alice Springs. Um, you know, before going there, I, I was expecting just an absolute barren, flat, inhospitable desert mm. landscape. And, you know, as you know, you fly in there and there's like these massive mountains everywhere, trees everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. No, I mean, Australia's deserts... Um, we do have some pretty much vegetation. Well, we do have um, seasonally vegetation-free deserts, you know, some of the stony deserts from um, Sturt Stony Desert and the Streslecki in um, northern South Australia and West Queensland and New South, certainly are vegetation-free sometimes and very barren and mm. inhospitable looking. But um, in general, um, you know, Australia doesn't have that many of the big sort of Sahara Desert-type mm. rolling sand dune vegetationless type um, systems, yeah. Most of our really dry, sandy deserts are covered by spinifex grasses. Yeah, we've just happened to be lucky in that we've got this lovely, amazing plant that's so drought adapted and can cope with the the, mm. the really arid areas. Yeah, I guess once you've got a plant there, then you have mm. a structural habitat yeah. for a whole ton yeah, of yeah. other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, which is why Australia's deserts are so interesting and and really full of life for the most part. Yeah, I really like the idea that you can see what's happening in a desert sort of written on the landscape. I mean, ages ago, we spoke to a desert ecologist called Charlotte Mills who just spoke about the writings in the sand and being able to look at a landscape where tracks stay there for a couple of days and things like that. And mm. it was a really eye-opening thing for me because I'm used to working in tropical rainforests where things change constantly almost daily just with storms and rain and massive turnover in these ecosystems but mm. i love this idea of a slow ecosystem where you can watch things happening mm. Mm. do you find that you can sort of read a desert landscape once you get there ah um yeah having spent a lot of time in deserts in australia yeah i definitely find a, you can you can read desert landscapes and sort of just walking into one you you can ha you have a fair bit of an idea about what's going on um but i i find there's always a lot of new stuff to be learnt um and yeah i don't quite know how it ha like and i find yeah you 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 pick up clue the more you walk in them you might go to a new system and uh and you, you'll have hunches about what things that are going on ecologically um, out there. But, yeah, I find you really do have to spend spend time walking around on the on the country. Um, you know, it might take days or weeks of, of being out there and before things really start to click into place in terms of um, getting a feel for what's going on. But desert systems, like you say, they, they are, can be slow to change. Um, you know, you can... For example, the transition from a good season to to a really poor season, which is what we've seen in the Gibson Desert, where I do a lot of work. Um, uh, recently, we had a, an exceptional season in in sort of 2016 and 17, um, and now it's just we've we've just gone through one of the driest, hottest summers ever, and it's definitely transitioned from you know a year or so back where everything was lush, green, all the plants were just going berserk there was wildlife everywhere to now when i was last out there a, a couple of months ago it's just bordering on horrific <laughs> uh 
um, how how bad it looks and how desperate things look with um, plants dying everywhere and or no plants in a lot of areas. So that's been a pretty slow transition from you know that's on a sort of a, a year type time scale, but. You can get very quick transitions in desert systems in Australia as well. Um, the transition from a bad season to a good season, for example, can happen very very quickly. All it would take would be a you know a month of really good rain, and you know then then it'd be very quickly back into looking amazing. Um, likewise, fire is a is a really major disturbance in in the deserts, and um, yeah, it can very quickly transition from a really good looking. Um, you know, healthy system into a burnt out, clapped out landscape with virtually nothing going on and just sort of dead dead plants and, and even animals mm. lying around. But then quite often, um, you know, you get a bit of rain after a fire and again, it just goes into a whole new cycle of, of, of regrowth and, and life. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. That's why it's, it's in, an interesting place to be because... Some things happen slowly, some things happen very fast, and it's always unpredictable, obviously. I mean, it's all, it's all about the rainfall generally, um, and re- rainfall in Arid Australia is really unpredictable. So you, from one year to the next, you just don't know what you're going to get mm. when you go out there. Yeah. Fire is another really important part of Australia's ecosystems. Is it the same all over the world, or is there something about Australia that makes fire such an influential part of I think survive. Do you mean in arid ecosystems the world over, or or um, fire in ecosystems generally? In ecosystems generally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, ecosystems generally the world over, and and in Australia, fire is always a a big agent for change. Um, you know, I mean, it kills things and um, it also knocks things back, even if it doesn't kill them. Just speaking about plants here, um, you know, a lot of trees might get knocked back to ground level, but then they might have sort of root buds or suckers that come up after a fire. Um, But then there's also usually a whole bunch of um, plant species that don't really grow unless there's been a bit of fire, especially in in really fire-prone ecosystems where plants have had a chance to sort of evolve with fire and and develop life cycles that that are in sync with fire cycles um so yeah absolutely i mean it's it's a um a big driver of of vegetation change and faunal change you know because um well just taking the spinifex grasslands for example um the the fire story of even them is really really important um if you don't have fire for a long period of time what happens is those little spinifex seedlings get going and uh, they soon grow to adults and some of those spinivex grasses can get very big some of them can be as big as a car some of them can be um you know up to pretty easily up to five meters in diameter or more um and they really just take over the the um, ecosystems in the absence of fire um they sort of push everything out so very quickly you can i've got some good photos somewhere here very quickly you can end up with a system where it's just spinifex, you know, mm-hmm. but then uh, fire comes along and it it either kills off the spinifex grasses, um, a lot of them are just fire killed, uh, or or it'll remove the adult above ground vegetation and and trigger them to re-sprout um, from underground organs. 
So it's, so the fire will come through, take away the above ground vegetation, and it gives a chance for everything else to to come into the system. So yeah, you can get sort of plant species richness um, before a fire of like one. I've got pl- I sampled plenty of plots in my time where I've got a species richness of one over a sort of 20 <laughs> by 20 uh, metre plot. But then you get a fire come through and it might go up to 20 or 30 species mm. in a plot. You know, there's just so many species out there that have seeds that are cued to germinate after fire, either by the heat of the fire or the smoke from a fire. Um, and a lot of the species have fairly short life cycles. So what they do is they, they germinate after a fire comes through. They grow quickly with the first um, good post-fire rainfalls, and then they set seed quickly. Um, and that that um, aspect of the uh, regeneration of the, the grasslands is really important for the animals because uh, a lot of those species that come up after fire and set seed quickly, like the, um, the Yakura grasses or um, a lot of the Solanums, the bush tomatoes, a lot of them are really essential for, for animals like the bilbies and... Uh, rodents and so on they all have a field day after you you have a fire go through in fact there's a lot of research around now um i mean yeah there's been it's been known for a long time that fire management of spinifex grasslands is really important for um increasing food resources for for animals and so on as well as providing um the um protection against predators a lot of the introduced predators like the the foxes and cats um again sort of have a have a bit of a field day in a um this is sort of going into the patch burning story but um yeah having a bit of sort of um burnt habitat to provide food and then having a few patches of an unburned habitat to provide shelter is apparently very um good for for conserving animal populations native animal populations so people have been managing these landscapes with fire for for millennia really Mm -hmm. is that all part of it have animals and plants adapted to not just natural fire regimes fires that would occur by chance but also fires that have been lit by people oh that's a yeah that's a really interesting question um and one that i've thought about it for a lot um and it's also one that i don't really think's been addressed properly in any literature that i've really come across um I think people do tend to overlook the fact that fire's been in the Australian landscape for a, a long time, um, well before humans arrived in Australia, um, and we're talking millions of years, definitely on evolutionary timescales, um, uh, whereas humans have you know, been here a very long time as well, um, many tens of thousands of years, but... Uh, yeah, so I think definitely the animals would have adapted to the um, the fire regime, the pre-human fire regimes um, in Australia and arid Australia, uh, and whether they're now the fire regimes prior to humans arriving probably would have been pretty different from the fire regimes that that um, came in after the arrival of humans. Prior to humans, I'd imagine in the arid zone, the uh, fire regimes would be pretty similar to what we see now in unmanaged parts of arid Australia, where the fire cycles are really driven by rainfall events, big rainfall times. In, uh, in the arid zone, generally fires are constrained by fuel load, um, how much sort of grass is lying around to carry fires. 
And for most of the time, there's just not the fuel there to carry fires, except after you get really exceptionally high rainfall times. So um, in arid Australia, you get these huge uh, rain uh, wildfire years that follow on shortly after big um, rainfall periods. So prior to human arrival, I reckon that would have just been the norm. You would have had not too much fire in the landscape most of the time and then big fires after big rain times. Whereas when humans came along and um, with with their burning practices and, and I mean, you, you have to burn country in arid Australia in order to to survive because the um, as I was saying in, in spinifex grasslands the um, all of the good food plants don't really grow in, unless you get fire a lot of the solanums and a lot of the edible grasses gra- grasses that produce edible seeds anyway so the Aboriginal peoples burnt the landscape um, to promote these food plants and so yeah after fires came after humans came along fire frequency would have increased a lot so whether the animals in the um, the deserts of Australia are kind of adapted to that human regime and need the patch burning that the the uh, humans have brought in, um, or whether they're kind of uh, more adapted to the pre-human regime, where it's just purely a kind of a, a rain-driven fire regime, and you get big, large-scale uh, fires after big rains. Um, is open is a, is a bit debatable. I'm not really sure. Um, certainly, the pre-human fire regimes, you, you, we're talking millions of years of, of evolution with that um, that fire fire regime. Whereas we're only talking tens of thousands of years with the human uh, fire regime. The important th- one thing that throws a whole another. Uh, thing to consider into that story though is that especially for conservation managers is that now in arid australia we're dealing with the problem of um introduced carnivores the the feral cats and the foxes and um and so these big wildfires that occur in unmanaged parts of australia now that um after you get these big rainfall years that they're very big they're very um usually pretty intense they remove you know vast stretches of of vegetation cover so in the presence of predators um you know foxes and cats wandering around these big fires appear to be pretty detrimental for um for the native mammals because they're just so big and there's so little cover left that the native animals are just sort of um easy pickings for the cats and foxes so there's definitely um, an argument for patch burning in the contemporary situation where you've got predators and that making sure you've got some unburnt country left um, is very important to provide predator protection for the native animals. You spend a lot of time working out in these environments, not just with the plants and animals, but also with the people in the communities in those areas. And not only do you walk the walk, but you talk the talk. So you're... a uh, interpreter uh, between English-speaking uh, people and some communities out there. How, how did that come about? Did, did you learn these languages and develop those communities through science or was the relationship there and that enabled you to do research in those areas? Well, I mean, I initially um, went out to Central Australia in 2002 um, 
for about a decade before that, in my twenties, I was um, I was sort of I was, I'd, I'd somehow for some reason developed a really strong interest in the arid zone and uh, had been venturing further and further from my home base in Brisbane um, into Western Queensland, and uh, and I'd also developed working on a cotton farms around Moree during my uni years, um, uni holidays, I developed, for some reason, developed a really strong interest in um, bush food, bush tuckers and so on, um, food plants. And so I was really keen to get out and work with um, Indigenous people in Central Australia where the, I knew that they had very good, um, you know, there was a lot of traditional knowledge about the food plants and also the the um they just seem to have the arid zone systems that i was interested in and i was actually really inspired by this book here written by a very good old friend of mine peter latz who's um definitely australia's foremost um white person european expert on um arid zone bush bush tuckers and i just used to look at i'd be sitting in brisbane um at uni looking at this beautiful book all these amazing looking looking bush tuckers mm-hmm. and I was just inspired to head to the centre. So I went out there initially in 2002 and um, got a job on an Aboriginal community called Hast's Bluff, um, which is about 300k, no, 250k west of Alice Springs. Um, and in all my readings up till then, I'd read that if you want to kind of learn and sort of make friends and so on with um, Indigenous peoples, you, a very good starting point is trying to learn a bit of the local lingo. So from the day I arrived at Haas Bluff, I really made a point of buying all the available literature on the language of the local people. The local people were the um, the Pintaby Literature people. And so, yeah, I mean, I lived, I did that. I did an initial year working there as a, um, doing some environmental type sort of we management and so on stuff on the community and then I began my PhD the year after in 2003 I think um, on on the fire ecology of this the grasslands and I lived kept on living at Haas Bluff during that time um, so from for most I had a couple of years doing field work out there um, and then after I finished my PhD I went back to Haas Bluff and um, did aged care for a couple of years because I, um, yeah, I love working with old Aboriginal people. Um, I don't know, they're just amazing people. Um, yeah, they're funny, knowledgeable, just really cool people to spend time around. I've, I've always just loved um, hanging out with them and you just, yeah, learn so much and just honoured and really appreciate the time I've spent around them. Um so yeah, I mean, after after working with uh, the Aboriginal people out there for and living on country for uh, quite a few years, I um, I went into Alice Springs. Me and my wife went into Alice Springs for a few years in two thousand and um, eleven, and worked and lived there for a few years. And I worked for the Aboriginal Interpreter Service in in Alice Springs there, and have continued working for the, doing interpreting um, ever ever since, even when I come back to Armidale here where um, I get jobs occasionally doing translating and interpreting and so on and so forth. Um, it's kind of incredible. It's not like you can just go to the community centre and enrol in a course in Pintaby Literature. You, you just had to dive in and figure it out as you go. What was that like? I'm assuming that you know, they would have spoke some English Yep. <laughs> Obviously, you weren't yeah, just yeah. going in blind. Yep. 
I mean, most of them speak English. There's certainly still plenty of old people that, that don't speak that much English. Um, but yeah, no, I had to dive in the deep end. And like any language, I mean, you, it's pretty darn hard or I would might say in, nearly impossible to learn a language unless you're immersed in the, the people that are, the local people that are speaking the language and you're sort of being surrounded by it daily and sort of getting a chance to make a fool of yourself and try and use it daily. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough. I, I had some, made some really good friends and even from the first few days I landed out there, I'd say the first year I was trying to learn the language, I probably learned the most from the kids out there, the young, mm. the children, because I was doing a bit of um, sort of youth work as well. I had to be on the ball there because they were constantly telling me to say this word and that word. And when I'd go and check what they were in the dictionary, they they were very naughty swear words and whatnot. <laughs> I should have clued on to that the way they were laughing every time I'd repeat whatever they said. But um, yeah, I learned heaps from, from, from hanging out with the children out there, the kids doing that work. Um, also hanging out with the kids was a good way to sort of learn because it they didn't care if you sounded stupid when you're trying. Mm. I mean, learning a language, you've got to be trying to exercise your language skills. And so, yeah, working with the kids was a good low-pressure situation mm. where it doesn't, didn't matter if I sounded stupid. And gradually, gradually, you, the, the words and the sentences start rolling off your tongue easier and easier. But I'd say another really important influence on, learning, on me for learning the language was... Um, Having access to a chap called uh, Ken Hansen, who, who is basically the man. He's Mr. Pinterby, actually. He, he did the original. He's done the dictionary and learner's guides and uh, all sorts of stuff. He's a linguist and an excellent linguist at that. And he's been studying the Pinterby language since the, uh, the 60s, I believe. And, um, yeah, I've... I've been lucky enough to sort of um, been able be able to sort of consult with Ken on language issues and get advice on uh, on on grammar and so on over the years. So that's been really important. Um, and then going into the interpreter service and uh, you know my lang my language speaking was at a certain level before I went in. It was apparently good enough to 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 start off working for them. But I being in those situations with um we had to work in the court a lot in Alice Springs or in Centrelink um sometimes with police and so on um just those the being in those sort of formal situations working as an interpreter and with other interpreters was also a big um stepping stone for improving the 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 Pintaby literature language that I speak what would you say your language level is are you totally fluent or are you Fumbling your way through. <laughs> uh, it's to be honest, it's pretty difficult living remote, living remotely from the um, where you speak it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, no, no, I, there's no way I'm. A, I, there's no way I speak it 100% fluently. But look, I speak well enough to to be Nati accredited. Nati's the National Interpreters and Translators Accreditation Authority. I've been credited with them and worked for the Interpreter Service for quite a few years. Um, so you know, it's good. It's good enough to talk to people but um, I still think I would love to speak better and better um, and every time the problem with living over here in Armadale and not being around the language every day is that you you know your tongue loses practice mm. getting getting your mouth around the words and the mm. sentences so every time I fly back out there and um, you know hang out with the people it takes a few days or whatever to get back in the swing of it and 
Yeah, and you, so you're forever sort of chasing your tail. Mm. So <laughs> yeah. Pintaby literature is out where you were in Harsbluff. Yep. Yeah, so that's the language from Harsbluff. Pintaby literature is spoken from about um, the easternmost communities of Harsbluff and Papunya, possibly even Mbungara, which is a bit closer to Alice. So that language runs from about 200k west of Alice way out to um, Kirukura community, which is about 200k's west of the WANT border. So it, it spans a good six or seven hundred kilometres um, east to west. And uh, it's also pretty similar to a lot of other desert languages in central Australia, like Pijinjara, um, well, Wonkajara a little bit, Madujara. There's, there's definitely crossover. And if you can speak Pintabi literature, you can definitely speak to Pijinjara people. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you, it's sort of part of a language group called the Western Desert Language Group. And it's interesting. Like, I can have a pretty good conversation with a Pijinjara person who might be from Uluru, Ayers Rock, 500k to the south east or whatever of... of um, where, where I learnt it, um, whereas just about 50k over the mountain range from Bluff at Hermansburg Community, where they speak something called Aranda, forget it. Wouldn't have a clue mm. what they're saying. It's just a completely different language. So, you know, imagine we're right here in Anawan, Camilla Road country. Yep. N- nothing you can well, interpret I've, here? <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. But it's interesting. <laughs> I've had a look at um, down at the uh, the cultural center here and um just had a bit of a look at the grammar of the narwhan language and the um a little bit of the vocabulary and there's you know there's one or two words that are the same and the grammar looks like it sort of operates in a pretty similar sort of way so um yeah there's probably similarities but i'm not a linguist at all Mm. i'm I'm an interpreter i'm just a speaker of the language i don't um, you know, I'm not. I don't understand the linguistics of it all of Aboriginal languages. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely seems to be similarities f- from here to there. What's your thoughts then on sort of incorporating more Indigenous languages into modern societies? You, know, you go to a place like New Zealand, where there's much tighter links with Maori, and it's taught in schools, and you can use Maori language in signage. And it kind of works because it's somewhat uniform across the whole country. Mm. Do you think that's something that's feasible here in Australia or are languages so dynamic that uh, mm. it'd be hard to incorporate in any sort of systematic way? don't know. It'd probably be a little tricky. I mean, Australia had something like up to 300 different languages um, originally. Um, now I think that's been reduced quite a lot, but... Um, there is just such a diversity of, of different languages um, and uh, in Australia that I think it pro- would probably be pretty um, <laughs> uh, impossible to um, have some kind of universal language, uh, Aboriginal language. But look, I reckon it's absolutely fantastic um, people p- teaching Aboriginal languages in schools. Um, I've heard that in a lot of parts of, of New South Wales that's happening and there's revival of languages that are that are sort of slowly become, verging to, toward, moving towards extinction, being revived in schools in New South Wales and, uh, and you know, dictionaries being done up and so on and that's just fantastic. Um, 
And I mean, in, in Central Australia, where, where you've got a lot of communities and the top end, um, where you've got a lot of communities where the first language is the local indigenous language, um, yeah, the, a lot of a lot of the schools are making big efforts to um, to to preserve language and and uh, have local teachers from local Aboriginal teachers teaching in language and all that sort of thing. Some good friends of mine have recently graduated um, with degrees in some of those Western Desert communities. Degrees where they're sort of in being a a, a, um, a teacher in the the local Indigenous language. So. Yeah, it's it's really good um, that that's all happening, and it's a good way to preserve language and culture. Um, yeah. In terms of the science that you do, you've spent years building a relationship with the communities that you can kind of work with and do research with them, and uh, sort of utilize their knowledge and share knowledge with them. That's a pretty amazing opportunity. I imagine that there's lots of other scientists though that are in. You know, we're we're in the the postdoc funny money type of situation that we're talking about, where you have a job for a year and then you're gonna go on to do something else, and you don't have the opportunity to develop long term relationships with communities. You, what would be your advice? How how would scientists approach doing work with communities? Should they, if they can't invest in the communities the way that you've been able to? Ah. Uh. Yeah, mate, that's a tricky one. Like, my situation, the way I've had to approach it, because like I was saying earlier, I've kind of got, I've, I've been, I've always been um, in my ecology research, really, really only interested in the the, Abor- the the very arid areas where Aboriginal people live. I've been interested in the ecology of those places, the the culture and languages, and the, the people being around the people of those places. Um, so for me. Yeah, I really battled um, for a long time trying to think of a ha- of a way that I would be able to possibly continue to pursue that sort of research. I mean, it was all it was easy enough doing an honours and, and a PhD out there because um, you know within, when you're within the structure of a PhD and a university system that supports you, that's all fine. But once you finish your PhD and in, and like you say, you're into that funny money <laughs> world of the <laughs> postdoc system. Uh, it gets pretty damn hard to convince anyone, any kind of you know ARC body or whatever, that that these you know very remote, pastorally poor, um, and economically unviable systems and areas are worth res- throwing money at. Mm. So um, look, for a long time I and continue you know, still to some extent have to sort of just take any any work I can get and you know like I was saying I've, I've worked a lot of aged care um, and other jobs kind of on the side and for a long time I, I had to um, just basically do my research stuff on the weekends you know um, and uh, just sort of almost treat it as a hobby I'm, I'm lucky in, at the moment because I've got a very there's a very nice a good ecologist from Brisbane that's supporting me with um, or we've we've managed to get some funding and and are able to sort of continue doing a bit of arid uh, research um, in those areas. But, um, yeah, gosh. Look, I was after my PhD, I was looking around for about um, nearly 10 years without having any, any luck finding funding. I did eventually find some. So 
but it's not that I wouldn't have been able to go and and fight and do research in those areas if I had have had funding. Um, and so, you know, for other scientists that are wanting to do research in arid areas, um, yeah, I don't think there's and even Aboriginal owned areas, I don't think there's um, any major obstacles to to getting into places um, if you if you have funding and, and are able to do it. I mean, of course. You always have to, um, you know, respect Aboriginal people's, um, you know, wishes and and whatever, and have to work with them. And uh, I mean, yeah, there is, there is a whole lot of it. Definitely helps working with community, having worked with communities in a variety of capacities. For me, I think I get given permission to do research on Aboriginal lands. Um, very easily these days, probably because I have put in a, nearly a good 20 years with a particular tr- tribal group. Um, so I always sort of go back to them and, and work with them and like to do my stuff in their lands. Um, and I always try and include them, the Aboriginal people, as much as possible in research I do, um, you know, whether it be ethnobotanical or ecological or whatever sort of research i mean um you know we're out we're all out there together we're you know we're sharing this wonderful country and um these these lands so um yeah definitely definitely would recommend yeah for any people looking to work on aboriginal lands you've got to be aware that you've got to include local people um as much as possible in whatever research is taking place um so yeah I mean, there's also there's also a lot of pastoral land in in uh, arid parts of Australia that that is often good sort of habitat for doing ecological research as well. And I I've found in my um, research I've often found pastoral. It's really fantastic to deal with with research. There's also a lot less sort of red tape when you're going <laughs> working with pastoralist yeah. people and on pastoral land. And I kind of liked that 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 sort of made it really easy to. You know, basically, you just sort of ring ring the station manager and briefly just say who you are and what you want to do. And nine times out of ten, I've found station people in in Central Australia absolutely fantastic, supportive, interested. Um, they just want to make sure you close the gate. Once yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, there's there's different options. There's different ways of getting onto country to do research in. Um, in remote Australia. You're heading out to country any time soon? Oh, mate, unfortunately. I mean, yeah, I was out there a month or two back um, in the Gibson, but uh, yeah, I've got some teaching here at UNE for um, three or four months coming up, so I'm pretty limited um, then. we do. I do take the students on a field trip out to the Pilliga Forest, which is um, sort of on the edge of the semi-arid zone, a few hours west of Armidale here, and um, that's a, a hyper fire-prone landscape um, out there. So, yeah, I find it really interesting from a fire ecology perspective. Um, yeah, so that's we've got a field trip with the UNE um, ecology, uh, vegetation ecology unit in August. But, yeah, it's going to be a while to, till I get back to my beloved um, true desert home. Um, pro- I'm, I'm thinking possibly the September holidays. I might just fly out there and have a have a bit of a sticky peek <laughs> just for the sheer joy of it yeah. yeah i can just predict that by about september i'll be starting to get kind of a bit shaky and edgy you know because i have, <laughs> won't have had any of my, my desert sort of fix for a while so armadale yeah. becomes too big a tone for you yeah. All of a sudden. yeah 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 um other than that i think maybe november yeah hopefully i'll get a there might be an aged care stint i'll do a bit of remote um 
kind of aged care fill-in work on those remote Indigenous communities. So hopefully November might be another stent out in the Gibson at, at Kirikura community. Um, so, yeah. Well, good on you for sticking with uh, doing what you love and, and prioritising that above, you know, just getting the nice cushy job. <laughs> and it's never been an option the nice cushy job's just never been an option as you probably might feel yourself yeah, yeah. you've got to follow your passions and yeah. your, your interests i think and and doors kind of open usually um in one shape or form yeah, yeah. good well, okay. here's hoping you can get out again soon yeah no worries all right well thanks so much for coming on the podcast pleasure james no worries at all and thank you guys for listening check out more of our interviews at insitruscience.com or at insitruscience on social media if you're enjoying us, don't forget to leave us a review and also check out our new Patreon page to help us create more content. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Damn.